Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have Nicholas Thompson on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, The Hawk and the Dove, Paul Nitza, George Kennan, and the History of the Cold War. I actually met George Kennan on two occasions. I believe the first time was in 1983, and he was a spry. And then I also met him in the late 90s, in which he was uh, rather hobbled. On both occasions, it struck me that he was a very dignified person, but a kind of an odd person as well. I think that both of these characteristics come out in Nicholas's wonderful book, and we get to learn a lot about Paul Nitze as well. And we get to hear the entire history of the Cold War as told in this remarkable twin biography. We can see how the lives of these two really very interesting and complicated men uh, weave in and out of the story, which is uh, that of the conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union. So without further ado, here is the interview. Hi, Nicholas. Hey, Marshall. How are you? I'm very well today. It's a beautiful day here in Iowa. How is it in New York City? Uh, overcast and sort of nasty. I'm sorry to hear that. That will not <laughs> foreshadow anything in this interview. I, I no. should tell our listeners that we have Nicholas Thompson on the show, and we will be talking about his new book, the Hawk and the Dove, Paul Nitze, George Kennan, and the History of the Cold War. I was telling Nicholas in the pre-interview that I think that the book is really very beautifully written. Uh, Nicholas is quite a stylist. Uh, we should uh, have him talk to large groups of uh, academic historians to explain <laughs> to us uh, how we might write better, because there are lots and lots of pithy, quotable sentences in the book. Uh, it has an interesting narrative line. It's not exactly linear. Uh, it weaves in the life of two different people uh, going back and forth, but not in a regular pattern, so you don't really ever know what's coming next. So anyway, it's a, it's a, for those of you that like um, uh, history, I think it's a, it's a terrific read, and I hope that the book finds a large readership. So having said all that by way of introduction, Nicholas, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, well, that was an awfully kind introduction. <laughs> it's all true. Um, <laughs> I am a, uh, I'm an editor at Wired Magazine. It's my day job. And I spent the last um, four years writing this book. Nitze uh, was my grandfather. And the idea of the book was to tell the story of the Cold War through characters. Um, most history of the Cold Wars are written episodically. You know, there's a section on the Korean War, and there's a section on the Vietnam War. And I thought, well, what about trying to tell it through people? And there are really only two people who are prominent at the very beginning of the Cold War, influential throughout it and then his careers wrap up at the end of the Cold War. They're really, both Nitz and Kennan are there at the very beginning, there at the very end. Their working careers span the Cold War almost exactly. Um, and then there are a few other elements that made it a good story. One is that they're friends. Two is that they're profound rivals. Each believe that the other's strategy was likely to blow up the world. And then third, as Nitz's grandson, I, of course, had access to all sorts of documents uh, and to people, people who are willing to talk to me who wouldn't have been willing to uh, speak with me otherwise. So that's the basic idea of the book, and I can tell you a lot more about the details of it. Mm-hmm. Let's talk just a little bit, because many of the people that listen to this show, I think, are um, professional historians. Most of them aren't, of course, but still, we're always interested in sources, and you say you had access to Nitz's papers. Where are Nitz's papers now? Well, okay, there are a couple of collections that I had access to. I, of course, used uh, papers at the National Archives, um, all sorts of collections at libraries around the country were sort of a secondary value to me. But the collections that were a real value to me were NHTSA's official papers, which are at the Library of Congress, which are closed, um, which you need permission to see. Um, but I actually am in charge of who gets permission, so if you're listening now, you can have permission. <laughs> um, so those, that was sort of collection one. Collection two, which was even more interesting, I was looking at um, a small set of papers, maybe four or five boxes that were um, held by a professor at SICE, the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins. Mm-hmm. And I went in there um, one Saturday, and I said to the janitor here, there's nobody else around, I'm, I'm here to see the NITA papers. 
he'd take me to the sixth floor. Uh, and he didn't really speak English, and I didn't really speak very good Spanish. He ended up taking me to the fourth floor. I said, okay, well, might as well go with him, see what happens. Opens the elevator, turns right, walks down this hallway, unlocks a door, and in there, there's a giant blue boiler. And behind it are 60 or 70 boxes. Mm. And those are apparently my grandfather's personal papers that he just left inside. Oh. <laughs> Someone at some point moved them behind the board. <coughs> Nobody knew they were there except for this janitor, not even the dean. Wow. Uh, and in these papers, you know, are handwritten notes from the Cuban Missile Crisis, mm-hmm. handwritten notes from the Berlin Crisis, my grandfather's notes on Reykjavik, mm-hmm. uh, letters from his mother, all sorts of things that were really important to the book. So those papers I spent, you know, weeks um, behind the boiler. I set up a little desk going through the boxes. And then I, uh, when I finished my project, I gave all of those to the Library of Congress. So those are being sorted right now and will mm-hmm. be available to the public uh, in not so long. Mm-hmm. The third collection that was extremely important to me is that um, Kenan's family opened up his personal papers and diaries. Um, Kenan had a lot of papers uh, at the Mudd Library at Princeton, and I, of course, went through those, the regular collection that had been used for the you know, several very good biographies that have been written about Kenan. But then I was also given access to all of these private, long-closed papers. So I had, um, John Lewis Gaddis has had access to them, and I had access to them. Mm-hmm. And now, um, as of this year, they've all been made public. Mm-hmm. And there even, I learned, uh, last night I was down in, in Princeton giving a talk, and I learned that there's a uh, even a few more boxes that I didn't get to hmm. see that have been made public, including Kenan's dream diary. So hmm. uh, wow. if there are historians listening to this right now, you should, uh, you should go to Mud Library and check out the dream diary. I'm utterly intrigued what's in there. So those are really the, the three collections that were most important to me. Mm, that's interesting. And where are Kenan's papers today? They're mostly at Princeton then? They're, they're all at Princeton, yep. I see, okay. Uh, I mean, there are obviously some papers in the policy planning staff files at the National mm-hmm. Archives there. Um, you know, there's a very interesting collection, um, you know, C. Ben Wright's papers that are at the Marshall Library in Lexington, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're good Kenan papers there, but the best material, the most original material, his diaries, his personal letters, all of that stuff, that's all at Princeton. Hmm, that's interesting. So that's, uh, there's material there for many, many dissertations and good books. So we oh, absolutely, yeah, and I look forward that. to reading them. Yeah. The, um, the, the, the other thing that you did that I was interested to see, and I'm always intrigued at this because as a, I was trained as a medievalist, and all those people, well, they're dead. Uh, so you went, you interviewed um, pretty much everybody everywhere. I, I just, the <laughs> list of people you interviewed is truly incredible. How did, how did you get that list, and how did you approach them, and who are they? Well, what's interesting is that for me, you know, my training is as a journalist, so interviewing was a skill set I'd already developed, whereas historical and documentary research was something I, I hadn't done as much of. So it was actually sort of harder for me to learn how to be efficient in the National Archives than it was to, you know, find everybody who was connected to Nitsa and Ken in different parts of their lives and then just feel comfortable calling them and visiting them. So I went through um, and I organized the books, the book into scenes, and I started, my structure was I began with one large word file that was a chronological list of scenes, important episodes, and important moments. And then I would sort of think through each scene and think, is there anybody who is involved in it who's alive today? Uh, And if they are, I would call them or write them and try to set up an interview, uh, ideally in person, sometimes by phone. Uh, And I ended up meeting, you know, just a amazing group of people, and this is where being Nitz's grandson really helped, and that uh, people who knew my grandfather, there were lots of them, were willing to talk. But I met, I mean, some of my favorite interviews, I had a wonderful interview with uh, Martha Motner, who worked in the embassy in Moscow with Kenan in the 1940s, and she's a pale old lady with wonderful memories. Um, one of the first people I interviewed was Robert Bowie, who's now, he's now 99. He was the head of the policy planning staff after Nitz and Kenan. Um, I spent a lot of time with um, Richard Pearl and Paul Wolfowitz, and people who are quite prominent, who normally wouldn't you know, talk to just any journalist, but were willing to talk to me for this project. Mm-hmm. Talk to Richard Pipes? I did talk to Richard Pipes. I went and talked to him. Uh, I believe I interviewed, interviewed him at least twice. Yeah, no, I, bet, um, I remember that, actually, because I remember it in the book. You mentioned it in the book. Yeah. He, yeah. he was very important in the Team B episode and my grandfather in the 1970s. And he, of course, I mean, there were also people, you know, I wanted to interview people who knew Nitsa, who knew Kenan, who were involved in these scenes. And then there were also people who just know a lot about the period. So Pipes, um, in addition to his specific memories, he knew both Nitsa and Kenan, mm-hmm. uh, was very helpful in helping me understand the dynamic of Soviet-American relationships mm-hmm. and his his view on this, which you know a lot of people dispute, a lot of people agree with. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't trying to pick sides. I was trying to learn from everybody. Um, so I talked to all sorts of people like that. Mm-hmm. It was quite amazing. It must have been an amazing experience to talk to all those people. And you went to Moscow, is that correct? I did go to Moscow, um, and I went to... My goal there was to talk to as many people as I could who knew Nitsin Kennan to get the Soviet perspective. And mostly, um, 
mostly I talked to people who had been arms negotiators with my grandfather, so the people who had negotiated the Halt um, One Agreement or the INF Treaty, or who had been there at uh, Reykjavik, or who were there at the you know the, the later INF negotiations. Um, and that was very interesting to get the perspective of them. And then, of course, I also wanted to ask them, you know, you know, tell me, tell me what were the Soviets thinking during the Cuban Missile Crisis or the Caribbean Crisis, as they call it, and to try to get uh, as much as I could, both because it's interesting and because you know, my goal was for sort of every paragraph or every page to have something, to have something new, to have something fresh, to have something interesting. And of course, I didn't succeed on that. But there, it's a lot easier to get new and fresh material if you're talking to people on the Soviet side because they haven't been interviewed um, mm -hmm. so many times and for so many previous books. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right about that, especially, you know, having worked in journalism a little bit myself, I know that uh, people that have been interviewed more than, I think, three times uh, have a certain set of sentences that they can spit out uh, without yeah. even thinking. <laughs> well, and it, you know, and it's even worse than that, is that a lot of times people will prepare for their interview with you by rereading the same text yeah. they read, or they'll read, you mm -hmm. know, they'll read Nitsa's memoirs before the interview with you about mm -hmm. Nitsa, at which point... They're just sort of recounting the story there. And you can understand that because it's a way to sort of reinforce and recreate those memories, but it's not helpful. So the job in the interview is to try to, you know, to pull them out of that somehow, to tell them about other episodes or to sort of maybe surprise them with a question that leads them mm -hmm. to tell you something interesting and new. And that's, you know, mm -hmm. that's hard. And sometimes I, I had success with that, and a lot of times mm -hmm. I didn't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm amazed that you were able to hold a day job while you wrote this book because, I mean, it's a terrific book and also working a day job. That's tough. So, uh, um uh, I, I admire well, you I took, on I that. I took front. six months off. Oh, I, you did? Okay. I had yeah. a, my wife, uh, my wife got pregnant, and I had a baby coming, and uh, I realized that there's no way I could do the book, uh, hold down the job, and raise a child. So yeah. I had to really rush. Um, not rush, but I had to pick up the pace quite a bit. Uh -huh. So I took six months off, and I got, you know, in that six-month period, I got from, you know, from World War II to the Reagan administration. Still quite an achievement. So was, that, that, that was very important that I did that. So let's actually talk about these two characters. Yeah. Um, let's begin by talking about uh, Nitsa. And wh where was he from exactly? What, what was his background? He had kind of adventuresome youth. Yeah, he had very adventuresome youth. He grew up in Chicago. <laughs> um, his father was a sort of world-famous philologist. Uh, William A. Nitsa has written classic texts on um, French literature. And um, his family had a very strong German connection. So he grows up there. Uh, around the University of Chicago. You know, his father is a professor. He's sort of a rambunctious kid. He joins a street gang. He plays lots of football, but you know, isn't that good at it. Um, he finishes uh, his high school requirements very early. He goes to Hotchkiss because his father thinks he's too young to go to college. Um, he's not very happy there. The memory he seems to like the most is the summer he spends uh, working on a boat sailing the, across the Atlantic. Uh, then he goes to Harvard. And at Harvard, he's kind of, um, you know, there aren't frats, but he's basically a frat boy. Um, he parties a lot, you know, he probably you know, he runs naked up and down Massachusetts Avenue. He doesn't really, he doesn't really get it together. I mean, he ends up, gra he's a smart guy, of course, and he ends up graduating with distinction or something. Um, but he also almost bunks out at one point. There's a terrible accident where he runs somebody over driving. He may have been drunk. I mean, it's a, it's a sort of a wayward youth. Not completely. I mean, he still manages to get through Harvard, um, but it's not a discipline and focused life. And then um, in his 20s, he goes to, he goes to Wall Street, um, and he meets Clarence Dillon. And through sort of a family connection, he goes in to see Dillon. And this is um, it's meeting Dillon and meeting James Forstall. He's looking at Dillon Reed. And that's where Nitsa starts to focus. And that's where they say, look, you know, you're a young guy. You're clearly talented, but you have no idea what you're talking about. And you're not going to get through this, and you're not going to succeed on charm and wit and sort of the charisma that get you to succeed and get you into the Postelling Club, you're actually going to have to do stuff. Mm -hmm. And so this is where Nitsa learns how to work, and this is where Nitsa becomes efficient. He ends up, he claims to be the last man hired before the Great Depression, before the stock market crash in 29. I don't know if that's true, but there's some truth to it. He's hired right before the crash. He comes on, and yet he still makes money during the Depression. He still does well. So that's, that's Nitsa's beginning. Let me, ask, let me just pause there for a second and ask you about a couple things that caught my attention. I, I knew a little bit about Nitsa's uh, biography, Prior to this, mostly uh, I knew about the Team B stuff. Uh, yeah. But the, the this early incident in which he, uh, I, I don't know what happens, but there is an auto accident. He is driving, and he runs a couple of people over, and one of them dies. Yeah. Well, what exactly happened there? And he seems to have uh, settled this. I, I, mean, I don't really understand how it was. It, what, he wasn't prosecuted for anything. He 
he ends up settling with them. There's a civil suit or something? Maybe you could explain a little bit about this. Yeah, it's hard. You know, I didn't get the court records. I went back and checked. We had librarians in Boston trying to figure it out. What we know is that um, he's, um, he's dating this, uh, I think it's Mary Ames, who's part of the you know, famous Boston Ames family. They're sort of a hard party and um, so highly respected social circle. They're going out one night. They're going around a corner on Beacon Street, and they run, uh, they run two people over. Um, one of whom dies, and the other of whom uh, has you know, fractured something. Um, and it's unclear. You know, he writes letters home. What I've seen are the letters home to his parents, and the letters say, you know, there's been a horrible accident. These people ran in front of the car. It was terrible. Um, the one person has died, mostly from shock. You know, we've done everything we could um, to try to help out. And so there's that. Uh, and there's but there's also you know sort of signs of carelessness. There's also letters from Mary. Um, but what you also see is you see in the very beginning, you see kind of a, um, a cold, non-emotional reaction. But then later in the letter chain, you start seeing letters from Mary to him saying, I'm so proud of what you've done during this. I'm so proud about how you've stood strong during this ordeal. And there are a few letters from his lawyer that I've seen where it says, you know, this could be a serious problem. We don't want it to go in front of a jury. You're completely innocent, but what will a Boston jury think of this Harvard student who's done this thing? Um, so it's a very there's a bunch of fragment, fragmented evidence, but it looks like what happened is there was a bad accident. He was probably somewhat at fault. He probably was acting reckless, but it wasn't sort of an obvious case of drunk and disorderly, you know, total um, buffoonery. Um, and they end up the end up settling out of court, and he ends up paying a certain amount of money to the families, and it um, it then disappears. And I had you know I'm his grandson. I didn't I didn't know a thing about it until I um, until I got into the letters. Funny, I found out something like that about my grandfather. He uh Nothing on this level. He didn't. He didn't. Wasn't involved in a death, but he was a uh, basically an unindicted co-conspirator in a uh, grain fraud uh, uh-huh. uh, uh, sort of thing in Kansas, where I'm from. I, did, I, did, huh. I never knew this about him until he died, and I was like, yeah, he was uh, the Al Capone of grain. Wow, <laughs> something like that. I don't know. I, I never really looked into it. But anyway, the second thing I wanted to ask about uh, was, uh, or maybe point out to the listeners, is this was an interesting moment for me. Uh, is that uh, he. He enters a circle of people uh, at Harvard uh, in something called the Porcellian Club, and we should tell people they don't know what that is. This is one of the they're called finals clubs at Harvard, and uh, they they used to be something of quite dis- uh, they marked a certain amount of distinction. You were of of a certain kind. I don't know the p- people of old blue blood families got into them, and it's a, it wasn't really exactly from a blue blood family, but yeah. uh, he he knew people that were, and so he goes to this club. But you describe some things in the book, uh, some scenes at which he's Surrounded by people who will later run the United States, <laughs> <laughs> basically. Right. And they're all, you know, all sorts of senators and treasury secretaries. He's very, becomes very good friends in the club with Chip Boland, who, of course, becomes uh, you know, Roosevelt's translator at Yalta. He becomes good friends with Joseph Alsop, the you know, prominent journalist to the club. It's a, it's a great networking tool. And I think that, um, you know, despite his sort of wayward, unfocused sense, then he certainly makes connections who will be important to him throughout his career in life. This is how he gets to Wall Street. I mean, he goes with a letter of recommendation from I forget whom exactly, and uh, I think I think people don't understand what letters of recommendation uh, used to be because now, <laughs> now the, the currency has been devalued. Right now, I mean, the letters of introduction, you know, the letters of introduction, yeah, meet with exactly. this young man. You yeah. know, I'm a friend of yours. Meet exactly. with this young, that, promising Mr. Nixon. That was really worth quite a lot, and so he gets into Wall Street that way, and he kind of he joins the investment banking world. He joins um, the investment banking world. You yeah. Dylan Reed, and this is where he makes his most important contact of those years, which is Forrestal, Jim Forrestal. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So then, let's go to uh, Kenan. Uh, explain his background to us. So Kenan grows up in Milwaukee, um, and he is a much harder youth. You know, Nitsa has parents overwhelmingly love him. Kenan's Kenan is the has four older sisters, and his mother dies right after he's born. There's some complications there. It's not related to birth, but it's I think it's appendicitis. I'm not exactly sure how mm-hmm. she dies. Yeah. She dies in some sort of terrible way. Yeah, tragically. Yeah. Tragically, after his son is born. Um, so he grows up with a stepmother who doesn't really like him, a father who's distant, and a house that, um, you know, fittingly, my favorite detail about it is that they put the windows on the wrong side of the house, so instead of facing the yard, the windows face another building. Mm. Um, so it's a very dark and somber house. Kenan grows up, and he's quiet, withdrawn, very thoughtful. Um, one of my favorite facts is that in his high school yearbook, it was pet peeves, and Kenan's pet peeve is the universe. Um, <laughs> He writes poetry, and it's kind of dark and somber, but beautiful and amazing. He's clearly an exceptionally bright kid. Um, he's sent off to military academy at one point, runs away, hates it. Um, and then he goes to Princeton. And Princeton is, um, you know, he's 
he's not he's not well off at all. He's a relatively for, for Princeton at that time. He's not an affluent guy. Um, he shows up at Princeton and he's he doesn't he doesn't fit in. He's an outcast. He joins an eating club, you know, the key to social success at Princeton, very briefly, and then leaves it. Um, he decides that he doesn't want to be that. He's too proud to be a member of an eating club, so he joins the dining hall for the rejects. He sits at the you know, table by himself, just showing that he can grin and bear it. Um, and so it's a very, very cold, um, sort of unhappy period in his life. Um, but then he leaves Princeton, and one of the key thing in Kennan's life is that he believes he's something of a reincarnation of his great, or I guess of his uncle's cousin. It's, there's a slightly complicated relationship. But there's a there's a predecessor also named George Kennan, the great explorer of uh, Russia. And he writes these very important books in the early 20th century about, about Russia and exploring Siberia. Uh, and Kennan, you know, it's the same birthday, the same name, thinks he's got some spiritual connection to this older George Kennan. So the young George Kennan decides to go into the Foreign Service and he decides to learn Russian. Uh, and this is how his career begins. And he really starts to blossom intellectually. He's kind of a B student at Princeton. He's not very well remembered. There aren't you know, friends of his who will later write about what he was like. But once he gets to once he eventually gets to Russia, once we normalize relationships, once it opens up and he's there in the early 1930s, then this is where he starts to blossom and become the uh, man we would all later be well aware of. Kennan, in this point, let's talk about the 30s a little bit because Kennan's career takes off, I think, at yeah. this point. He, be he becomes uh, uh, somebody in the diplomatic corps, whereas Nitsa is – what is Nitsa doing? Is he floundering? Or, he's no, he's, he still, he's still on Wall Street. Yeah. I mean, Kennan, um, Kennan's – both of them in the 1930s, you know, neither becomes famous, neither becomes, um, you know, truly important. Neither is, you know, mentioned in the New York Times, but both have very important intellectual development. For Nitsa in the 1930s, it's about learning uh, the way finance works. It's about learning how to get things done. For Kennan, it's about learning the way the world works. It's about learning languages. It's about learning about Stalin. Um, so they, you know, they get through the 1930s. They both, um, they both become sort of very intellectually competent people. Um, Nitsa's route into government is uh, kind of tangential. So Nitsa, by the end of the 1930s, he's kind of had it with finance. He's spent too much time on Wall Street, and you know he thinks there are bigger questions out there. You know, this is probably his father's influence. His father, and, and, and money is no longer an issue for him at this. He's money's well, no longer an issue. He's he married well. Right. He's made money. He's yeah. he's got what he needs. So at one, I think it's in 1939, he decides he's going to go back to Harvard and he's going to study the great questions. He's going to mm -hmm. learn what life is about. Mm -hmm. So he leaves banking, goes to Harvard, spends six months. Doesn't figure it out. Comes back, decides he wants to start Paul Lichnitz and Company's own firm, but he doesn't really like it. So he's kind of stuck. What do I do with my life? Then James Forstall is brought in by Franklin Roosevelt, uh, and he's going to be the liaison between the government and the business community. And Forstall you know, says, well, if I'm going to do this, I need a young aide. I need Paul Nitsa. So he sends in this telegram, and it says, you know, be in Washington Monday, Forstall. Nitsa gets it while he's working on some business deal down in Louisiana. <laughs> And you know, that's it. That's the beginning. So, you know, that takes Nitsa to Washington, and he will not leave for 64 years. Um, Kennan, um, you know, he works in the diplomatic corps. He rises very quickly. He rises faster than almost anybody, you know, anybody else in his class. He goes up. He's clearly brilliant. He can clearly understand what's happening in Russia. He sees through Stalin and the purges. You know, he's, he's a translator for Joseph Davies, the ambassador, who's sort of a Stalin supplicant who doesn't, who doesn't understand what's going on. Um, but Kennan really becomes prominent. Um, it, it, you know, he, he well, <laughs> he, so Kennan sort of carves out this position where he's very critical of Russia. He's very critical of Stalin, and this, of course, is during World War II, where Stalin is our great ally. Um, and so, while Stalin is considered Uncle Joe to everybody else back in America, Kennan is saying, "Hey, you know, Russian history shows that we're never going to get along with this guy." So Kennan, he takes this position from being a very smart person whose name nobody knows to suddenly becoming one of the most prominent people around when he writes what's called the Long Telegram, mm -hmm. which most of the people listening to this will know. Uh, and this is his famous document. It's February 46. So early in that month, Stalin gives a very aggressive speech at the Bolshoi Theater in um, America. You know, somebody, the State Department cables to Canada and says, why is Stalin being so aggressive? Why won't Russia, why won't the Soviets join the IMF? I mean, what is going on? They were our friends. And so Kennan says, uh, and he writes this long memo. One of my favorite stories of the book is, you know, the night of this memo. This mm -hmm. is where yeah, this woman I mentioned, Martha Montner, comes in, and she's this 22-year-old um, uh, working in the code room, and she's there, and she's got a date that evening. 
So Kennan comes down, you know, the tall figure of George Kennan comes down, he has this long stack of papers. And he says to Modern, he says, I've got this, I've got this telegram, it's very important, you have to send it. And she looks at it, she tells me the story, and she looks at it and she reads it and she says, oh, I understand this. And she says, you've said all this already, does it have to go out? <laughs> and Kennan says, yes, it must go out. And so she takes it and she sends it and she's sort of late to her dance party. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's a long telegram. That's the document that transforms the way that Americans think of the Soviet Union. It goes back, it's given to James Forstall, and then it's given to everybody else in government, it's passed around, and suddenly, here's this explanation. Here's why Stalin is not, you know, not our friend, is not working with us. Here's what's happening with foreign relations. And Kennan is a brilliant guy who knows Russian history, who understands this, and so suddenly he's hugely in demand. American foreign policy starts to shift. Kennan is summoned back, and this person who, in January 1946, nobody knows his name, is made the head of the Hall's planning staff. He's the guy who has to come up with the big thoughts and guide Truman, Marshall, and Atchison uh, through these very crucial years post-World War II. So before we um, actually move on a little bit, and I want to talk about what Nitsa does during World War II, because I find it truly amazing. Yeah. I found myself being very envious of his. Uh, <laughs> he, he has a really neat, uh, neat. I don't know what's been horrible, but a really incredible adventure uh, in the closing. I mean, he's, uh, Nitsa's life is full of adventures. Yeah, I, uh, one, really one of my favorite emails, I got an email from a friend the other day who had read the book, and he said, uh, you know, I want to write like Kennan and live like Nitsa. Yeah, no, that's right. That's pretty much it. So there is one moment I didn't. I'd never. I never really read a Kennan uh, biography before, but there was one moment that that quite surprised me because it was contrary to the way we ordinarily think about Kennan, at least that I thought about Kennan, and that's yes. this uh, essay that he wrote in nineteen thirty. Five or seven? Oh, right. seven. Yeah. 37. Yeah, and, and this essay, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the essay and the context in which it was written and what it says. Yeah, the essay is horrible. Uh, it's called The Prerequisites. Kennan is living, he's back in, um, back from serving abroad, and he's living in Alexandria, and he's come back after being away. He doesn't really know his country, and he comes back, and he sees billboards, and he sees, you know, the influence of corporations, and he sees, you know, Congress is inefficient, and things that people have sort of complained about forever and are complaining about today and will complain about you know, for a long time. And Kennan just thinks the country is, is going to hell and that what we really need to do is to um, have a you know, group of... Kennan's favorite form of government, the back of his mind and sometimes you know, towards the front of his mind, was always benevolent dictatorship. He always wanted America to be run by a small group of people or you know, maybe one person who had the best interests in mind uh, and who would make the sort of the hard, tough decisions that was messy clumsy democracy could never figure out. And so in this essay, it basically says, you know, we need to disenfranchise uh, African Americans, we need to disenfranchise women. It's just creating chaos and you know, they have no idea what's happening. And we need a small uh, a small group of highly educated people. And you can imagine who they were. They would be, you know, people like George Kennan, mm-hmm. highly educated, highly dedicated people who you know, serve abroad. You know, Kennan would probably try to appoint Nissa, and Nissa would have found the whole thing so horrible. Um, and you know, we should recast government to have basically a benevolent dictatorship where I have a prominent role. Um, and he writes this essay, which thankfully he then stuffed in his papers, uh, and it's not you know, uncovered for quite some time. Mm-hmm. But it's a really, I mean, Kennan has a, I mean, this is something that I learned while reading his diaries, while reading his personal notes. He has a very dark side, and mm-hmm. the dark side is comprised of you know, fundamental dislike of democracy, mm-hmm. the sense that this political system is Profoundly flawed, mm-hmm. um, lack of tolerance for other people, particularly people of other races, genders, mm-hmm. uh, religious views. He believed that you know this country was you know, built by hardworking you know Midwestern people in New Englanders with you know tough skin who you know could work work through the cold winters and you know they built this wonderful country and they should continue to push it. And that's um, you know, at the end of his life, he was sort of in favor of Vermont secessionism. I mean, it's, there's, a, there's a line that you can draw through um, that's, you know, very dark. And fortunately, fortunately, this didn't come out. Because it would have it would have ruined George Kennan, and he would have missed all the sort of the very smart and wonderful things he did mm-hmm. did for this country and all the, you know, brilliant things he wrote. He, um, you know, there's a there's an essay, um, or there's a description of him in Joseph Alsop's uh, autobiography where he says that um, Kennan is like the Oracle of Delphi. Sometimes you would speak the, you know, the most profound truth, and the other half would speak the most profound gibberish. You know, there's nothing in between. It's either, mm-hmm. it's either brilliance or just absolutely and completely wrong, which is partly why he's such an interesting biographical study. I mean, he's an amazing, fascinating character who has this dark, you know, 
very, very, you know, the sign that, that, that it's hard to respect alike. And you can read these essays or diary entries of Ken, and you're just, this man is repulsive. And then you read other things, and you think, oh my God, this is one of the most brilliant writers and thinkers I've ever seen. So there's a, it, it's a very complicated character. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree with that. Uh, I think that it's always interesting to uh, take our contemporary image of someone, particularly if we have lionized them in some way, as many people have lionized Kennan, and then uh, look at all of their views. Because what we find out almost always is that they held views that, by our lights, are um, completely retrograde. And this yeah. isn't just Kennan. I mean, I, I think it's almost everybody. Uh, but it's my, more... my, my favorite example is, is someone like Lincoln, who, you know, was, it, he freed the slaves and so on and so forth, but he didn't really think much Africans. Uh, yeah. And that's very clear in the record. Um, but so so it, it is more so with Kennan, because this is a really peculiar one almost wants to say fascist sort of essay. Uh, and I, I had never heard of it, and I'm not quite sure what to think about it. I, it's, a, it's a very strange thing. But anyway, let's go on with uh, Nitzan. We'll talk about his, yeah. uh, what he does during World War II. And this particularly the close of World War II. is particularly fascinating. Yeah, so, I mean, he works sort of in mineral minerals procurement. He has all sorts of jobs in Washington. But what he does at the close of World War II is he joins the Strategic Bombing Survey. And his job is to, he speaks German, is to go to Germany and is to find ex-Nazi leaders and to interview them. <laughs> and the person he spends the most time with is Albert Speer. And there are these long, sort of amazing transcripts. I mean, I wish I could have written more about him in the book, but um, these long conversations where Nitza, along with John Kenneth Galbraith and George Ball, uh, they're interviewing Speer and they're asking, you know, this bombing attack on this particular day, what did it do? And Speer knows everything. And he tells us these amazing things like, didn't want you to hit these factories. I wanted to hit these other factories. So we put these other factories that we thought you cared about, that, but we didn't care about, you know, put them in obvious places so it would be easy for you to destroy. But really the stuff we needed to do, we hid in these ways. And you didn't quite figure it out, and you should have bombed this way and that way or this way and that way. And NHTSA has this incredible education, both on understanding the specifics of that war, but also how strategic bombing um, can be played out. We often think that, okay, this many planes flew and dropped this many bombs and blew up this many things. And what Spear was saying is that actually it makes a huge difference whether you're blowing up, you know, tire plants or whether you're blowing up ball bearing factories. And some really matter to the war production effort, and some don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Nitsa starts to understand and starts to think through all this. So that's sort of step one. He finishes with Germany. He finishes with Spear. Actually, the last night he's told that okay, Spear's gonna be arrested the next day. You have one more interview. And so the. Uh, <laughs> The last interview, Nitsa says, okay, Spear, you know, says, Mr. Spear, forget all this stuff. I don't want to hear about the bombing anymore. I want to know about Hitler, and I want to know what it was like. And so that's when you get the sort of all the stories that end up in uh, Hugh Trevor Roper's amazing book about the last days of the Third Reich and the chaos and the bunkers and the mayhem. And so Nitsa gets all that stuff, and it's spellbinding. Um, his next step is he's sent to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, and he's there. He's one of the first Americans who lands after the bomb. And his job, as he writes in his memoirs, to put calipers on the destruction to try to understand what happened. Why did some buildings fall, and why did some buildings stand? Um, and he has these sort of these memories that are really important to him, and that he sort of latches onto about, for example, people in a train in Nagasaki. The people who are near closed windows when the bomb goes off, they get cut by the glass, and it seems bad at first. People near the open windows are more likely to die of radiation exposure. And so it's all these sort of complicated ways of looking at nuclear bombs and the effects of nuclear bombs. And his thesis is that these weapons are not supernatural. They're not things that were created by God. They were created by man. And they have blast effects, and they have radiation effects, and they have explosive effects. Uh, and we can understand all these things. And we can, in some good ways and in some bad ways, learn how to attack others, you know, the lessons from spear. And we can learn how to defend ourselves. And so he really starts to get inside sort of the world of mass destruction, what it means and what it doesn't mean. And that begins a lifelong inquiry into these questions, and that's what will dominate his career and his life. Mm-hmm. So how does he um, – I know what happens to Kennan. How, what happens to Nitsa right after the war? What does he do? So he you know, joins the strategic bombing survey. He works on that for a while. He publishes his report. Uh, then he's brought back to the State Department. Said, I remember you said he was very disappointed that his report didn't have a great impact. I know. So he's very he, important. He, about, yeah. He writes a report about the war, and he, he thinks you know, everybody's going to read it. It's so fascinating, all these incredible – things he's learned about Japan, and he puts it out there, and nobody cares. Uh, and he lobbies Congress. I remember reading these letters where he says, you know, here's my report. I've enclosed a whole lot of fresh salmon, you know. <laughs> and nobody gets back to me. There's, there's not a single letter from anybody who cares. It's just, it just it, it goes into a complete abyss. 
it's like Kennan's earlier writings where nobody notices. Uh, you have to get the timing right. You have to get lucky. And nobody, it's, you know, Nitta doesn't write like Kennan, not in the same order of magnitude. Um, so the report it just disappears and he's bummed out. So his rise is slower than Kennan. You know, Kennan is meteoric. You know, there's this moment where he's nobody and there's a moment where he's somebody. And Nitsa kind of crawls his way up, works in the State Department. He's a good numbers man because he's worked on Wall Street. He has economic experience. He works, he works on the economics of the Marshall Plan. He spends a lot of time lobbying for the Marshall Plan. Uh, not lobbying, or testifying for the Marshall Plan in front of Congress. It's a very important experience for him. Days on end about how many pulses we should send to Austria. So he's, he's involved in these decisions and he gradually works his way up. And then uh, in the spring of 1949, uh, Kennan, still head of the policy planning staff, says, let's make this smart economist guy, Paul Nitsa, the deputy. And so at that moment, Nitsa and Kennan work together. They're the top two policy planners under, um, under Atchison. Mm-hmm. And how do they get along? What do they do? They get along wonderfully. They had actually met in 1943 on a train, a uh, train between New York and Washington. And Nitsa is a social guy, and he saw Kennan and sat down across from him, and they started chatting, and they had a good conversation. They remembered each other. Um, you know, they had worked also a little bit in 1948, trying to come up with policy towards Germany. Um, and then 49, they get, they get along swimmingly um, for, for quite some time until August of 1949. And that's the demarcation line. That's the moment where Nitsa and Kennan split, and they split philosophically, and they, both, and they set the pattern by which they'll live for the rest of their lives. Uh, and what happens then is that Stalin sets off an atomic bomb. So the monopoly is over. Right? We no longer have a monopoly on nuclear weapons. So the question is, what are we going to do? And Truman says to Atchison, what do we do? Are we going to build a hydrogen bomb? How do we counter this? Atchison says, I don't know. Calls to Nitsin Kennan and says, what are we going to do? Are we going to build a hydrogen bomb? And so Nitsin Kennan then take that question, and they have completely different answers, and they come to it in completely different ways. Kennan disappears into this quiet office in Finland. He writes this amazing 79-page paper. describes, if we build a hydrogen bomb, the Soviets will follow, and they too will build a hydrogen bomb. And then we will build something else, and they will build something else, and then we will have this nuclear arms race. We'll be unable to think rationally about foreign policy because we'll be obsessed with nuclear weapons. And it's this amazing essay. It quotes St. Paul. It quotes um, Shakespeare. It's, 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 it's wonderful. But it's also completely, totally, and utterly useless because he comes out with this at the end of December 49. The decision has to be made pronto. No one's going to read this paper. And by this point, Paul Nitsa, who is a much simpler syllogism, which is, are the Soviets going to try to build a hydrogen bomb? Yes. If they try to build a hydrogen bomb and if they succeed, will that be bad for us? Yes. Therefore, we need to try to build a hydrogen bomb first. And he takes that simple syllogism and he works the bureaucracy. He convinces these people. He goes to these meetings. And he learns how to become an inside player. And his argument, of course, wins the day. Not just because of him. There are all sorts of other people pushing this. But Nitsa plays a role in convincing Atchison. Atchison is part of this you know, crucial three-person committee that uh, Truman has set up with um, Lillian Ball and Secretary of Defense Johnson. Uh, see, should we build this hydrogen bomb? He knows that Lilienthal will be against and that Johnson will be in favor. So Atchison is a tiebreaker. Nitsa has a very important role in Atchison, so the group tells Truman our recommendation is we build it. There's a meeting that lasts seven minutes. Now, you can't read a 79-page paper in seven minutes, uh, where we decide to go ahead with the hydrogen bomb. And that is the moment where Hennon has sort of he's lost all of his influence. He's lost you know, the capacity to kind of work the bureaucracy. And from then on, he's an outsider. He, he will, you know, the rest of the Cold War, he will play the role of the sage, the dissident, the man who can see into the future, who can see what's going to happen, and who will write these amazing essays that will be beautiful to read, that will be brilliantly conceived of, and will not have much effect. Mm-hmm. And Nitsa will become the insider. He'll become the bureaucrat's bureaucrat. He'll be the man who works for every president, from Roosevelt to Bush. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he'll be working this, working that layer. He will never rise into the cabinet, but he will always be there. He'll always be around, always pushing things. Mm-hmm. I did want to uh, mention or talk to you a little bit about, because I haven't read the literature, about uh, what people think today about the long telegram and the X article that followed. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember learning about them and reading about them and doing some research about them, but you know, as, as I look back upon them, uh, though they might be beautifully written, some of the metaphors in them, particularly the wind-up toy metaphor, uh-huh. uh, is uh, crude beyond conception. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I like the wind-up toy. Well, you know, he says just to remind our listeners, he says at one point that the Soviets are a little bit like a wind-up toy, and uh, you know you, they'll just go in a certain direction until they put your hand in front of the wind-up toy, and it stops and go in a different direction. Then, um, I, I don't know if it's a very good metaphor, but it certainly was an influential metaphor. So, what do people think today about the long telegram and about the X article? Did they? Did you read some of that literature? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's a. I mean, today, um, 
I mean, today they're read mostly as historical documents and people, um, you know, trying to understand, you know, how policy changed. And they're not read as sort of policy descriptions to help us understand what we should do in Iran or Afghanistan. But the, you know, but the big debate and the really important debate surrounding them that sort of went on through the Cold War and that still continues to a certain degree is, you know, what did Ken mean? You know, Ken then talks about containment. And he says, we need to contain the Soviet Union. We need a policy of, you know, long-term vigilant containment. Um, and you know, we need to put our hand in front of the wind-up dog. And the question is whether he meant we should do that by using political means, things like the Marshall Plan, where if we see the Soviets are going to move into Western Europe, we should try to build up um, France and Germany or we should manipulate elections in Italy if we think the uh, Russians are going, the communists are going to win there. Uh, is it all political actions, you know, covert action? Or did he mean military? Did he mean that the way you put your hand in front of that dog is you build a whole bunch of bombs? Um, and the early interpretation, uh, so Kennan writes, he writes the uh, X article in Foreign Affairs, publishes it on the New Name X, and he doesn't describe what he really means by containment or how we should carry it out. So it's defined by other people. Defined, you know, in large part by Walter Lippmann, who defines it as a military doctrine. And then as it's implemented in the U.S. government, it's certainly defined as a military doctrine. Paul Nissa says, you know, containment is a great idea. The way you contain the Soviets is you have more weapons, and then they won't, you know, then the wind-up dog will stop. Um, so the big debate, though, is not how we implemented it. We clearly implemented it as a military doctrine. The big sort of historical debate and the one where people dig into tea leaves is what did Kennan mean? Did he mean it as a political document or did he mean it as a military document? And he would always claim he meant it just as a political document, but there are all sorts of debates about, well, actually, in the speech, he's very military. He said this and he said that. So that's one of the, the things that scholars are still hashing over. Mm -hmm. No, I find it all very interesting because one of the, I guess, cliches that I think Kennan is responsible for in uh, the development of Russian studies or Soviet studies in the United States is the notion that somehow the Russians are inherently intrinsically or natively imperialistic. Always yeah. aiming at expansion, and he seems to say he reads this from Russian history. But as somebody that has studied a lot of Russian history, I, I, I see what he means, and I see what the appearance is. But uh, it seems to me a kind of odd position. It was very influential at the time, and it seemed to explain what was going on. That there was something about the Russians that made them desire foreign territories, uh, a, pecu a peculiar, and I, really I don't think correct uh, um, statement of Soviet interest. At but in any event, I think, I think I mean I think a lot of Russian scholars feel the same way that um, Kennedy you know, had this wrong or had this had this wrong. But it's also true that he wrote it in this amazing language and he knew vastly more than you know, anybody else at the top of U.S. government. So they saw this and said, okay, this guy gets Russian history. Yeah, no, he does. It's absolutely true. So uh, let's talk about. Uh, so really, the, the person who has an impact on policy after this point is, is Nitsa. Nitsa starts to uh, be the kind of driver behind these things. And, yeah. and how is he influential in the formation of the, the Truman Doctrine and the events that followed? Well, you know, he doesn't play a real role in formulating the Truman Doctrine. I mean, that's a, that's a little before he becomes to power. But, you know, by 1950, I mean, where he really, the first document that he's extremely important at is NSC 68. And that's the document that says, the Soviets have this design to take over the world. We need to thwart them. And we need to vastly increase our military budget. Um, you know, he would advocate, you know, he, doesn't put, he didn't put a number in the document because he knew that would put a, basically set a target on it. Um, he wanted to quadruple the military budget from $13 billion to $50 billion. Uh, and he writes this document arguing why we should do that. Uh, the document is sort of put aside, uh, but then the Korean War starts, and then it's adopted. We do, in fact, quadruple our military budget. And so NHTSA is associated with this huge buildup of the American uh, armed forces, which begins um, you know, after the buildup and the wind-down after World War II, begins again in, um, in the spring of 1950, in the summer of 1950. So that's the most important thing he does under Truman. He also he plays a role in guiding Korean War policy. Actually, with Kennan, Kennan comes back into government, and you know they both agree. They both they agree that too much power is being given to MacArthur. They they actually they get the Korean War uh, do it quite accurately. And they know when things are going to fall apart. Uh, and so then it's a, he stays on through the rest of the Truman administration, helping guide policy towards Iran, for example. And he desperately wants to stay on in Eisenhower, but he's he's kicked out. Yeah. I, because, in, in a sense, Kennan's career is, is, as a diplomat, is over. Uh, he, he had a, quite a brief moment in the sun. And yeah, it's a very brief moment. He's there sort of four years in the 40s, and he comes back, and he's ambassador to Moscow for a few months before he, you know, screws up, um, denounces Moscow, and declared persona non grata. 
And then he comes back in the Kennedy administration as ambassador to Yugoslavia um, for two years, uh, and then he resigns. He's sort of dissatisfied, um, and that's it. That's his service. Um, he's kind of a he's kind of a prickly person, isn't he? I mean, he. I I think that in his annual performance review <laughs> they give you in corporations, I'm sure you get these too. Yeah. Uh, you know that uh, doesn't work well with others might come up. You know, yeah, Kennan never worked. I mean, that's the big difference between Kennan. Uh, is that Kennan never worked well with others. He was. Ken was best when he was alone writing and thinking, and he certainly liked doing that the most, and he always wanted more time to be alone and to write and to think, and he just kind of messed it up every time he was working with people. Um, but it, we don't, I don't want to say that Ken wasn't influential after he left government. He didn't have sort of policy on, he didn't have influence on this policy that day, um, but he is, you know, profoundly influential in shaping public opinion. There's a whole climate of opinion around Ken and the ideas you know, for many, you know, throughout the rest of the Cold War, he's a very important person, even if he's not the guy in the room saying, we should do this and not that. Mm -hmm. so what, uh, what year was the NSC 68? Uh, That's the spring of 1950. Yeah, I've actually read that document almost cover to cover, and it's worth reading. because it's It really, is worth reading. It's a truly it's amazing document. Very it's intense. Incredibly strident in its language. Uh, yeah, I read. I remember the first time I read that, and I read it as a student. It, and I remember thinking, it basically says that the Soviets are just trying to take over the world, and they'll do anything yeah. they can to do it. And uh, you know, American civilization is uh, at peril. I mean, it uses right. language just like that. I, absolutely, I, it's absolutely. Truly, uh, really, absolutely undiplomatic language, if I can call it that. Yeah. <laughs> totally undiplomatic language. What did uh, What did Ken think of it? Um, you know, I've, I've never found a specific reaction to Ken where he talks about an NC sixty eight, but he certainly talks about it in sort of. Um, generic terms, or he just says he's got everything wrong. You know, um, I mean, Nitsa doesn't cast the Soviet Union as a you know wind-up toy dog you can stop by putting your hand, and he casts it as sort of a barking Rottweiler that will bite off your hand and you need to you know, claw it backwards. So it's a very different interpretation of what the Soviets are like. Yeah, I see. So then let's move on into the um, sort of the later 50s and 60s. And, and yeah, what's interesting? One of the things interesting about uh, about Nitsa is precisely what you say is that he's always very close to. Uh, getting a kind of very prominent public role in an administration or a cabinet or be appointed Secretary of Defense, but he never is. Why is that? Well, there are a couple of reasons. One is just that, um, you know, even if you work for 10 administrations, how many shots do you have? And there's always a certain randomness. Like, at a certain point, McNamara was just a better Secretary of Defense candidate. So there were certain randomness. But it's also true that he, he probably could have. And one reason he didn't is that he never, he never was fully on anybody's team. He was always... A great, this is a great virtue and a great weakness of him. He was always entirely independent. He was always sort of his own party of one. He was never really on the Democrat side or really on the Republican side. So he never was completely trusted. He also had this funny tick, which is um, something everybody I interviewed said, and that is that when you're 25 and you talk to Paul Nitsa, he treats you as an equal. And that's amazing. It's great. And I remember this as a grandchild. You know, you question him on something, and he won't say, you're a fool, I'm not going to talk to you. He will say, okay, let's address that question. Let's deal with it. And that's great when you're a subordinate when you're younger. But he also treated presidents that way. So Jimmy Carter has an issue. He wouldn't say, oh, you know, Mr. President, of course, you know, you are so sage. He would say, aha, well, let's deal with that. You're wrong on this, wrong on this, wrong on that. Uh -huh. And he was just sort of congenitally unable to be subservient. Um, and so he alienated people. Uh, and he constantly wanted to be in the cabinet, and he never made it. So both of them, neither of them really dealt very well with people uh, in a way. But I, I you know, I, I kind of, get, uh, if I can stereotype a little bit, it seems to me that uh, Nitsa was sort of a hail fellow well met, you know, kind of a backslapping type, a, a serious minded guy, a, yeah. a doer and not a thinker. Whereas Kennan, he kind of withdraws into a sort of monastic cell, doesn't he? I mean, he, he really, he, when does he, when does he go to the uh, Institute for Advanced Studies? And well, he goes there in the 50s and he's sort of there off and on from the 50s until... And for know, those people who don't know what the Institute of Advanced Studies is, it's, uh, it, it is the closest thing to a, an academic monastery. I mean, it's, yeah. it's kind of in the woods in Princeton and, uh, they, it, you know, it's, it's like one of these sort of self-sustaining, um, um, I want to think like, you know, sort of moon base or something. You know, they have their own <laughs> clean food, water there and books and a library and the whole nine yards. You really never have to leave. It's, uh, it's, it's got its own compound. Uh -huh. the, 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 the help knows not to talk to you and stuff like that. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was perfect. It was perfect for George Kennedy. He could take long walks in the woods yeah, and think exactly. and talk with Robert Oppenheimer. Right, exactly. So did he, um, you know, he, he, he became a sort of, uh, I guess I don't know how to say it, but uh, he, he became kind of a, an ideological or literary darling of the, yeah. of the kind of New York publishing set because he, yeah. he, he's, he's always there. He gets published in all the right places and he, he publishes these books that are well-regarded. I don't know if they're well-read, 
but they win prizes. There's a difference. Um, uh, well, I think could, they are fairly well read. I mean, his American diplomacy and his memoir, they're read widely. I did. You know, it's funny you mentioned this because I, uh, the, the, re- the very reason that I went to college in the first place and study what I do today is because of a book he wrote, um, uh-huh. which was uh, and, Russia and the West under Lenin and Stalin. Well, there you go. I mean, yeah, there are I lots read, of people who yeah, say that. I read that book when I was 17. I think it was the first book I ever read, to be honest with <laughs> you. Right. I mean, they're mesmerizing. Yeah, they're no, incredible. I read it. And I was like, this is really cool. And, uh, I mean, he and has so, a, he's a poet. He's a, he writes these incredible character sketches. He's a great yeah. sense of drama and narrative. It was interesting. I don't know how that book got to where I was in Kansas at the very uh-huh. I don't know why. My parents had about three books, and that was one of them. I don't know why the hell they had that book. It was awesome. a hardcover blue book. I remember this very well. And uh, I think I talked about it in my application letter for college. And well, so, he, so, so th- hats off to George Kennan. And then when I was in college, I actually met George Kennan once. I, I met him twice in my life, and I don't really have any recollections of it either time. Uh, he, he was very old the second time I met him. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about NHTSA, and, and particularly about uh, uh, what was it called? I'm sorry, Team B. Is that right? I always yeah. forget this. Yeah, Team B. What is Team B? So Team B is a very important episode. So we get to the late 1970s, and NHTSA has been denied by the Carter administration. Actually, you know, this is this is before the Carter administration. Right? So this is um, this is November of '76, and he's fought with the Ford administration. He believes that America is sort of selling out to the Soviets, and that the Soviets have, for the first time in his life, moved far ahead of us in terms of nuclear arsenal. And this matters to him not because he's convinced there's a war, but because he thinks there'll be a conflict, and it might be over Berlin, it might be over Turkey. Um, but he has this fundamental belief, it's one of the most important beliefs that he carries throughout his life, and that is. Whoever has larger nuclear arsenal and whoever thinks they can win in an all-out war will win in a small conflict. And he thinks that's the lesson from Cuba, that the Soviets backed away because we had a large arsenal. It's the lesson of the Berlin crisis of 61. So we get to the 70s, and he's convinced that the Soviets are going to have more leverage than us. Uh, and so he starts this group called the Committee of the Present Danger, which you know, lobbies um, against the SALT II Treaty. And then he's brought in um, this thing called the Team B exercise, and it starts in August of 76. So... He's brought in uh, George Bush's head of the CIA, and um, NHTSA and a group of other people, including Richard Pipes, who we talked about earlier, are brought in, and their job is to analyze the CIA reports on the Soviet Union and to ask the question, is the CIA underestimating Soviet strength? And the answer, of course, is yes. Um, but what's interesting about this is that NHTSA and Pipes and these others come to the conclusion that the CIA is underestimating. Uh, and they have, this is why the CIA analysts are called TNA. It's in pipes, et cetera, called Team B. And there's this famous meeting that happens a couple days after the election in 76. And the CIA analysts, these young guys in their 30s who are satellite data on the Soviet Union, this is, this is what kind of silos they're building. This is, you know, the bison bombers they've got. And they sit down at a table, and they're expecting kind of a friendly conversation with the Team B people about you know, what they've got wrong, what to discuss, you know, bash or back. And instead, it's this incredibly fierce fight. It's a fierce fight where... It's a pipe, and these seasoned conservatives just shred the CIA analyst. Somebody uh, will later say that it's like, um, you know, Walt Whitman High School versus the Washington Redskins, and it's just brutal. Um, and it's a, you know, you know, bites the head off these young CIA analysts. And so it's a very, it's a very harsh moment. And then the, and the news of this, um, um, news of the existence of Team B is leaked, and it creates this whole firestorm. And it you know, brings up this big debate about CIA estimates of, of Soviet strength. It's a very, very interesting moment, which has a lot of other twists and turns in it. Yeah, Team B was very important because actually the whole Ford administration was very important uh, yeah. for, for the later Reagan administration, actually. Um, right. Yeah, so very important. Maybe you could take us uh, into the Reagan administration with NHTSA. What was NHTSA doing in the Reagan administration? Sure. So NHTSA, he spends the late 1970s as the, you know, the, the uber hawk, the man who brings down the SALT II Treaty. Reagan comes into office, and he respects NHTSA's knowledge of nuclear weapons, and he appoints him to be head of arms control, uh, or to be head, sorry, the chief arms negotiator at INF. Um, and this is just preposterous to people on the left. You know, Barbara Tuckman says that you know, making Paul NHTSA head of arms control is like making the Pope the head of abortion rights. Um, you know, NHTSA doesn't know how to control arms. But he comes in, and he's in his late 70s, it's early 80s, or his late 70s at this point. Um, and he, he comes in and he actually does want a deal. He's at the end of his career. And he's also scared. He's worried that the Atlantic Alliance is fraying because of uh, the nuclear issue. And he's worried that, you know, uh, that his friends in Germany, you know, that there will be a revolution in Germany or there will be a you know, decay in the German political system. And so he really does try to make a deal and he works. He goes to that famous moment where he goes and walks into the woods with his Soviet counterpart. Tear up and throw away all their negotiating instructions. They sit down on a log in the rain and the two of them work out their own deal. 
and they bring it back, and of course they're both crushed by their bureaucracies. But that is, you know, it's a it's a hail mary effort at you know breaking the logjam in arms negotiation that NHTSA pushes. Then at Reykjavik four years later, you know, NHTSA stays up all night, you know, 79 years old, pulls an all nighter trying to solve these issues that he's been working on since 1945, and he gets so close and desperately wants a deal, and then it falls through, and he's crushed. And there's a press conference, there's an incredible photo of him with tears coming down. You know, we tried, we tried, my God, we really tried. And so. In some ways, at this moment, it seems like he spent his whole life building up to this crescendo, this climax, this final moment, Reykjavik, where everything he's worked on will be resolved, uh, and then it falls apart. Um, but of course, as we all know, it doesn't actually you know, mean that much because the, the Soviet Union disappears in four years, and it's is hailed as a, as a hero. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, did, uh, did Nitsa and Kennan have a rapprochement at this moment? I mean, because you would think that Kennan would sort of like this, what, what, what was going on. Well, they, they have a sort of personal rapprochement, and they both, you know, they're very friendly to each other. They see each other. You know, Nita has this wonderful, comes up to Kennan's 80th birthday party, gives a wonderful yeah. toast. But the actual rapprochement, the one that, you know, inspired this book, and that was the first moment where I realized there could be this interesting history of Nitsa and Kennan, is in 1999. Um, and that's Cold War's over. Nitsa in the New York Times. He says, you know what? We don't actually need these weapons anymore. Um, you know, we, you know, conventional weapons will be fine for any future conflict, so let's just get rid of them. Um, and then I was at his house uh, two weeks later, and he gets this letter uh, from Kennan. And the letter reads something like, Dear Paul, I read your op-ed in today's New York Times. I agree with every word. Isn't it nice that after 50 years we finally find ourselves in accord on matters that meant so much in years gone by? And, you know, incredible letter. You can tell the personal history and you know, the warmth in it. Uh, and it just, that, that sort of planted the seed that Five years later, the two of them die. Very similar moment. It was a little bit like Jackson and Adams. And, wow, that's a great and when that happened, I thought back to the letter and I thought, oh, you could have a book. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great story. So let me, um, we're, we're almost out of time, but let me ask you a couple more questions. One of them is, sure. uh, what are your personal uh, recollections of Nitsa? I mean, he was your grandfather, and I, I imagine you have a lot to say, but what kind of a fellow was he? Well, you know, he was a wonderful fellow. I don't, you know, I never, I can't think of any political conversations I've had that you know, sort of stuck with me because by the time I was old enough to understand, these things and to learn about these things. He was kind of too old to check it out. Um, but, he, you know, from my childhood, we had a great time. We'd go fishing together. We'd go skiing. He was a great skier up to his 80s. We used to play in um, parent-child tennis tournaments where he would sort of sub in as my grandfather. Uh, and we would you know, play. There was a moment where I was probably when I was 10 and he was about 80 uh, where our skills kind of matched. We got sort of great tennis matches. And then, you know, I sort of got better. He sort of got a little older and we would still play. I mean, even at the end of his life, I remember... Um, we play tennis, and he would sort of you would put a chair at the baseline. And I'd hit him, he'd stand up and hit a ball, and he'd sort of sit down. And then I would hit one back to him, and he would stand up and hit it again, and he'd sit down. Uh, and so we had this wonderful sort of friendly relationship. He was, you know, for as hard as he worked, and as important as these issues were, and you know, to some people as profoundly wrong as he was on you know, the great matters of policy, he was without question just a lovely person to be around and a charming, you know, fantastic grandfather. And and that actually, you know, besides um, in making this book interesting to me. I mean, of course it's a problem because you have to write an objective biography. So you can't let your you know, love and personal feelings of this man overshadow the moments where you think he's wrong. So you have to be the greatest sort of narrative challenge for me was being completely detached while writing it. Um, but my personal memories of him, I think, also um, you know, helped me get, into, get interested in this book because the, the Paul Nitsa who's described in so many contemporary histories is kind of a shallow demon, you know, the man who, like, the dark soul of the Pentagon. And there are several books that have come out that have cast him that way. And if I hadn't known him, if I hadn't had a personal connection, and I had just sort of read the major histories of the you know, contemporary histories of the Cold War, I might never have realized how interesting and complicated he was. So Ken and everybody knows he's interesting and complicated. Nixon, I think, partly by having a personal connection to him, knew that he was interesting and complicated. Well, I mean, I want to thank you, and uh, on the part of the future readers or current readers of the book, I think I thank you for uh, bringing NHTSA to light. A lot has been written about Kennan, as you say, but I, I didn't know as much about NHTSA, and I'm very happy to, to know it now. Uh, he did have a truly remarkable life, and, and, yeah. uh, it's the, 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 uh, and the book is worth reading. If you just read the NHTSA parts, you could... <laughs> so you me, read the Kennan parts, too. Yeah, read the Kennan parts, too, of course. No, it's a, ter it's a terrific book, and I was really pleased. Um, again, I bring a certain perspective to it because I know quite a bit about Kennan, but the NHTSA yeah. part I thought was absolutely fascinating. And Team B was very important, and so was you know, this business with the Germans after the war. All, all of it very, really very, very interesting. And it's, there's another particular moment that I, I, I was glad that you brought up, and that is that 
you know, Nitz's report on whether it was necessary to drop the atomic bomb to get the Japanese oh, to yeah. surrender. Very, really interesting stuff there. Uh, and, and I think a lot to be learned uh, from what he has to say and why he said it. I think you have the right analysis there. But I'd heard about this before, and so I was happy to read about it. Um, so let me thank you for writing the book. Let me also <laughs> ask you our uh, traditional final question here uh-huh. on New Books in History, and that is, what are you doing now? What's, uh, what's on your plate? Uh, well, I'm an editor at Wired, so I'm editing stories about technology, and I'm now a contributing editor at Bloomberg TV, so I do a lot of technology analysis on TV. Uh, and I'm trying to find the next great book. So if anybody has a uh, brilliant idea for a dual biography where I can have you know, <laughs> amazing access to exclusive documents yeah, that reveal, you know, dark characters, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I don't know. I'm looking for the next. I would love to find another book. I don't know what it is. Right. Well, I mean, it's very refreshing for me to hear you say that because I think I've done about 100 of these interviews now with uh-huh. people that have written history books and professional historians. Uh, and you are the first person to say, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> So kudos to you. I think that's great. Keep, keep an open mind about what you're going to do next. Let me tell our listeners that we've been talking to uh, Nicholas Thompson about his book, The Hawk and the Dove, Paul Nitz at George Kennan and the History of the Cold War. Nicholas, thanks very much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you very it. much, Marshall. That was All great right. fun. Okay. Thank Take you. care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Nicholas Thompson about his new book, The Hawk and the Dove, Paul Nitz at George Kennan and the History of the Cold War. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.